Welcome to Sonic's Flight, the podcast devoted to all things Sonics. Sonic's Flight is a monthly podcast discussing current events, news, and topics of interest to the Sonics community. We aim to entertain and educate builders and pilots of Sonics aircraft designs, inspiring them to complete and operate their aircraft safely and efficiently. Welcome to Sonic's Flight. This is episode number 35. Sonics Flying in Australia, or better known as Sonics Down Under. Our friends in Australia are busy building and flying their Sonics aircraft, and they're doing some pretty interesting things. So although the hundred or so builders are spread across a very large country, there are definite hot spots of activity. We'll speak with several Aussie builders and hear about their challenges, their experiences, and their general overall experience building a Sonics being so far away from the factory at Oshkosh. I'm your host, Jeff Schultz, builder and pilot of Sonic 604 and Sonics 1374. Joining me again are my two good flying buddies, Gary Motley and John Gillis. Gary is builder of Hound Dog, an AeroV-powered tail dragger. He's a longtime pilot, a former CFI, and a multi-time airplane builder. Also, John Gillis. John flies his YX from his eastern Colorado air park home. John's best known for his custom touches, including his speed cowl, his tilt-back canopy, and his toe brakes. So this is part two of our Sonics Down Under episode. In this part, we're going to start off talking to Chris Dearden about his Xenos. And then in a little while, we're going to hear from Peter Anson about his scratch-built project and the various products that he manufactures as accessories for Sonics airplanes. First up, Chris Dearden. Chris lives in the southern part of Australia in the state of South Australia near Adelaide. He's a longtime glider pilot a motor glider pilot, powered airplane pilot, with nearly 50 years of flying experience. Did I get that right, Chris? 50 years? Yep. Unfortunately, yes. <laughs> Chris is the builder of Xenos number 35, an AeroV-powered Xenos. Chris also participated in a group build project of Asonics with over 35 members, and they now use that in their flight club for club member training and for general club use. So, Chris, thanks for taking a few minutes and uh, and talking with us, and got some interesting things we want to talk over here. Okay, nice to be here, guys. Help us get a feeling for where you're coming from. So, give us a little bit of your aviation background. Just tell us about your aviation training and your your experiences in glider flying, and then up to the point where you started thinking about building a, a Xenos. Uh, well, I grew up on Rabin Airfield in Victoria, where my Parents were involved with the, one of the flying training clubs, and uh, unfortunately for me, I saw a sailplane winch launch one day when we were about five, and that was it. I was obsessed by sailplanes. Um, I took up gliding. I went solo when I was fifteen, and then discovered hang gliding, which horrified my parents. But I did fly. I did about twelve hundred hours in, in hang gliders, which was good fun, and. A couple of thousand hours in sailplanes, including competing quite a bit. And all along, I'd been keen to build something. And I'd looked at the Moni and the, um, the Monterey early on in the piece to look at building a small self-launching sailplane. And when I saw the convector appear on the Sonex site many years ago now, uh, I thought that looked like a really good opportunity. And I'd been watching Lynn Jarvis build his, build his Sonex from scratch. And I thought that that, uh, along with John Meyer's uh, background, would have been um, a really nice aeroplane. But it, it took a little while in gestation, 
and I was still contemplating it when my good friend Steve Nelson came round to my place one day to have a cup of coffee and said, oh, I've got a good idea, let's build a Xenos. So we did, and it was a terrific experience. And although I'd had a lot of experience with fiberglass and wood before, I'd never built a metal aircraft. Uh, I'm now a, an absolute convert to metal construction. Well, and it's so much cleaner and easier, and it's very satisfying. I love it. Well, I like it because you can go down to the workshop and make a piece, and if you've got to be responsible and go and do something, you can, whereas if you've mixed up, mixed up the epoxy, then that's where you're going. You're going to have to do the whole job. Right. And where we are, the temperature in my workshop varies quite dramatically, so in the wintertime it can be, well, cold by our standards, probably not by yours, um, but it can be very hot in the summer, so the metal works well in that environment. Mm-hmm. So have you been up? Have you been up our way? Ever made it to Oshkosh? I haven't. I've been trying to. Um, life seems to have gotten in the way. I was supposed to be coming last year, and um, that didn't happen. And I don't think it's going to happen this year. But I've got to get there. You, you do trying, need to get there. Yes. Yeah, I've been trying to get to Oshkosh for thirty years, but for some reason or other, I seem to spend all my money on aeroplanes. <laughs> yeah, it's a big trip. I understand you. Yeah. <laughs> but it is on my list. So, Chris, just backing up a little bit, you, you mentioned the convector, and, and that's going way back. So you've been watching the, the birth of the Xenos when it was just a concept drawing. Oh, yeah. Uh, it got me quite excited. And as I said, I, Lynn was building, and I liked the way that aircraft looked and was built. And John had the background in glider type uh, aircraft, so... Yeah, I, it was something I watched for a long time, and I was very pleased to see it getting out there. And I'm a bit of a loss to understand why there aren't more of them being built at the moment. Well, before we go into the specifics about your Xenos and building it, maybe you can help us understand a little bit more about some of the gliding activities in Australia. Uh, well, gliding, when I started in gliding, was quite popular. We had several thousand members in Australia. It was uh, very active with lots of regattas and competitions going on. Unfortunately, for a bunch of reasons, I think gliding has regressed a bit in Australia. I think we're down to under 2,000 members. Uh, And at the same time, the light sport aircraft side through uh, the Australian Ultralight Foundation, which became Recreational Aviation Australia, uh, has now got 10,000 members. What we've seen with some of the smaller clubs is that uh, they get sticker shock at the price of buying a new two-seat training sailplane and often end up buying a Javaroo or similar light sport aircraft and turning themselves into effectively a small power club, uh, which is a little unfortunate because there aren't too many options between uh, very expensive two-seaters or motor gliders that are out there today, uh, and a lot of our fleet is getting old. Um, a good example is the Blanks, which you know, I spent more time than I'd like to imagine sitting in the back seat, which I have great affection for, but they've all been grounded in Australia now, except for a few with very expensive modifications. Yeah, I think we've seen some of the same trends. Gliding has been under stress in the U.S., the Soaring Society of America, 
they have been trying to promote some of these other types of competitions with um, with older, low-performance gliders and things like that. But I think it's been fairly ineffective because everybody really wants to buy that high-performance, brand-new, 50-to-1 LD, you know, glass ship. And no one wants to buy something that's older. And, and so you get this split going on. Those who can are, are gravitating to the super high-performance, and everybody else is just sort of fading away. You know, we did have – we've had – Sports class and vintage as groups here that are still quite strong and quite happily flying uh, older wooden aircraft or even older fiberglass aircraft, and that waxes and wanes. But those groups are the areas that don't seem to be reducing. Uh, it seems to be the high performance end that seems to be reducing in Australia. Anyway, we, we do our little bit to try and keep people interested in it. And uh, as I said, I'd, I'm happy to fly anything I'm flying all sorts of things all my life, and um, motor gliders I don't find as a fault. So Chris, um, talking about the, the Xenos as a motor glider, how do motor gliders fit into other gliding activities? Well, we've got a few clubs here. At, uh, at the club, at the airfield where the club has a hangar, we have a, a motor glider only club. Uh, they used to have pure sailplanes as well, but over the years they've They've now got they've got three uh, Grob 109s that they operate out of there. Some of the gliding people are a bit anti-motors. I think most people are quite happy to to uh, fly with them, but again, it's the cost issue of um, uh, getting a suitable aircraft for people to train in. Our um, Air Force cadets uh, recently purchased over 20 ASK-21 self-launching sailplanes uh, to use for uh, training of their cadets. They were, I think they replaced uh, some motor felts and various other things. So, you know, there is a, quite a good fleet out there in Australia of motor or self-launching sailplanes or motor gliders for people to train and uh, fly around. And you do see quite a few. There's Demoners and Grobs and various other things around the place, and, and quite a few stemmers as well. So the thing we've been talking about is just the convenience of having a motor glider, um, not even a, really a self-launching sailplane. Just when you want to fly something that you're not necessarily going to get too far from the airport, you want to take it out and enjoy some thermals, yep. and then you're going to come back to the airfield and land, you can't beat the convenience of a motor glider. Well, that's what makes motor glider clubs and motor gliders much more convenient. It's the fact that uh, you can go flying when you want, or you can book the aircraft when you want, just like a light sport aircraft. You can pretty much guarantee that you're going to get a flight for an hour and not five minutes off a wind launch or something. Right. And you can go somewhere. Uh, you know, the $100 hamburger becomes the $50 hamburger because you use a lot less fuel to get there. We tend to do that fly to places around here and there are some nice spots that we go from our local airfield. Like, for example, you go across to Kangaroo Island. It's about a 40-minute flight in the Xenos and uh, there's a nice airfield you can land at and get down to uh, the coast and have a cup of coffee and something to eat. And it's quite a nice day out. So you're talking about using a motor glider or the Xenos really as a very efficient airplane rather than a a, a glider that can motor you back to the airport. <laughs> oh, well, you can have both. The, uh, fortunately for us, where we fly, we get a combination of thermals, 
convergent zones along the coast and on some days quite uh, strong wave. Um, unfortunately, the best parts of it are in the controlled airspace. From that part of flying on the southern coast, I've had flights to eight to 10,000 feet, quite strong wave lift, being able to just cruise all the way back just with the engine idling and um, you know, using a few litres of fuel to get back to the airfield at still good cross-country speed. Mm-hmm, yeah. So when you think about, you know, your Xenos and how you normally fly it, what's a normal flight for you? What What do you tend to do the most of? Uh, I do a lot of local flying, and that's um, where we are is quite scenic, so we tend to take people out and go flying, and the, the convergence lift on the coast is quite often there in the afternoon. So you can launch out of the airfield and throttle back and just cruise looking at the place. <clears throat> uh, other than that, I, I've used it quite a bit to go interstate to fly-ins and we have the odd Sonix thing we're trying to improve. We're going to Leeton in September this year, so that's a, that's a uh, about a four-hour flight from where I am. Um, much better than driving, which is would take, I don't know, 10 or 12 hours to get there from where I live. So it's a, it's a nice way to get across the country too. Chris, when you, um, when you say you, you'll sometimes just, uh, you'll launch and just throttle back and, uh, and work the lift, um, do you ever shut down the engine and just soar or do you tend to just throttle back and idle and, and let the prop windmill with the uh, with the flow. Well, that's a tricky question for us because if the, my aircraft was well, the way it's registered with recreational aviation, when we initially registered it, we were allowed to turn the engine off and fly. And a couple of years after we finished it, um, there was a change in interpretation of the regulations, and we're no longer allowed to turn the engine off and fly. <clears throat> I mean, unless we've got a CFI in the aircraft. Um, so we tend not to turn it off, except when we've got the CFI with us. But having said that, uh, it still thermals fine with the engine idling. Um, and if you're going cross-country and following cloud streets and so on, uh, you're better off with 2,400 RPM uh, and about 8 litres an hour or 9 litres an hour uh, and pretend you're in a Stemmer S10. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and follow the cloud streets. Um, I mean, it is a lot better than the performance of a Gruno baby for going cross country, which I, I keep reminding people that all the FAI badges were set around. Uh, but you still get there a lot more quickly uh, with the engine running. So the the guys flying the Grobes one uh, nines, they're also doing the same thing. They just idle back. No, no, they're, they're registered with the Gliding Federation of Australia and uh, you can turn the engine off in flight. Oh, okay. See, that's a little different for us and I think I'm having a hard time getting my head wrapped around it because even in a regular powered experimental aircraft, if if you wanted to turn the engine off and, and glide back to the runway and it, you didn't create a hazard in doing so, the FAA wouldn't really care. Exactly. Yeah, we, it, it's... It's a peculiar anomaly, which we're, we're working on uh, getting around it. Yeah. Well, that's okay. That, that, doesn't, really, um, that doesn't really change the, 
the way you, you said you've been using it to fly very efficiently and, and use lift as you're, as you're heading someplace, that's still a, a really good use of the Xenos, I think. What do you think the uh, strengths and weaknesses, if you were to use the Xenos as a, as a training glider, how do you think that would work out? Uh, I think it's um, <clears throat> if you if you could use it for training, um, I think it would be very effective. Uh, from a glider pilot's perspective, if they've flown an ASK-21, it feels very heavy. Um, from a Cessna pilot's perspective, it feels very light. So uh, I think you can get used to it. And from training, like the Sonex, it's a little light in pitch, but a bit heavier in roll. But nevertheless, still quite a good aircraft uh, to to train people in, if if we could do that on a regular basis. Um, the only issue in Australia, and I guess it's the same for you people, is that the fuel capacity is a bit limiting. Uh, it's a long way between drinks here. Yeah. Well, we had talked earlier. Just um, I kind of have this sense that the Xenos is underappreciated within the soaring community, uh, both as just a, a really excellent low-cost motor glider, nothing can touch the price of it, and really as a good trainer, uh, you can get something that does a wide variety of things that new pilots um, are going to benefit from. Yeah, it's not going to replicate a, a, a slick glass modern glider, but that's okay. They got other things for that, and I think it has a, a great niche that we could be using it more of. Yeah, we've spent a lot of time trying to get more of them out there. Uh, we've now got, uh, I think there's three flying in Australia and uh, one nearing completion. Um, and uh, people are starting to see them more. And we're trying to get them around more. Uh, and it's just keeping on letting people know about it and keeping it uh, in people's mind when they when they're looking at it. The, the biggest impediment for clubs particularly is um, they think that building an aircraft is just too hard and there's all these horror stories of people starting projects and you know, years later it's never finished. Um, we made a lot of effort into uh, convincing people that, that a kit like this is quite doable and uh, you don't need anything special. You don't need a special space or tools. Uh, it does help to have a couple of people with the right skill sets. But um, as we all know, you know, by the time you finish the tailplane with the Sonex, um, you've developed all of the skills you need for the rest of the aircraft. Yeah, and that's a good transition into your group build. So let's uh, let's talk about that. So just looking at the website. The Sport Aircraft Club was an existing club that you you made the decision to to build a Sonics and then have it available for the members to use. And based on what we were talking about earlier, if you have built the airplane, then you can legally receive training in it also. Yeah. If that was the genesis of it, tell us a little bit about the how that process all went. Oh, well, our club motto is we build our own. And the club for, has members ranging from military and commercial right through to rag and tube people and for many years has, has operated as a sort of group to help people and provide advice and tools and information on building everything from, you know, lances to 
uh, drifters, we've been talking for a while about a club project because we had a lot of members who were keen to sort of learn more and came to we we run these regular workshop visits where you get to go and have a look at what someone's doing and a good chat about where they're at and we follow the projects to completion. But for a lot of people, it was difficult for them to get some hands-on experience without jumping in both feet at once. So we decided that we'd build an aircraft and we went down the path of having a look at all of the different projects that were out there. And in the end, the Sonex uh, came up as, uh, as our perfect choice. Uh, we were lucky to have a member who um, lent us a space to uh, uh, to build the aircraft. Thanks, Dr. Dan. <laughs> and uh, and away we went. It was um, it was interesting. Um, we had about thirty five people in all work on the aircraft, with a sort of core group of ten. And we discovered a number of interesting things about uh, building an aircraft from a kit like this um, with a group of people where you've got to be constantly training people in the skills. So people would come in a bit late and so that you'd have to teach them about um, drilling aluminium and clamping and um, the joys of deburring. <laughs> Have I told you how much I like deburring? And um, as much as removing those stainless steel ribs that you have to re- uh, uh, rivets that you have to replace. <laughs> uh, but it was it was a great project. We worked um, Tuesday and Thursday nights and Saturday, and some of us on the council of the club took the sort of lead role on each of the times to make sure that there was proper supervision for people when they turned up and. Uh, uh, although uh, Sonic, so you can build a, um, a Sonic in 600 hours if you've bought all of the CNC parts and the spar, uh, we ended up spending 3,000 hours on it, but that was spread over 35 people, and you've got to remember that there was lots of people standing around talking and drinking coffee, so um, I don't think that was an outrageous amount of time for us to have spent over two and a half years to get the aircraft to completion. The only real issue we found was in the when we got to the 90% done, 90% to go stage, and uh, there was less and less for people to do while we were um, you know, wiring up instrumentation, finalising engine stuff, doing the last bits and pieces. Although um, uh, if you've got a couple of polishers, uh, then there's always something for people to do to keep polishing metal while you're getting down towards that last little bit. And for most people, it was a thoroughly enjoyable uh, process. We, I think we only had one person who decided that, no, that wasn't for him. Uh, but everyone else had a pretty good time with it. And the aircraft's been in our hangar at Murray Bridge now for a couple of years and uh, is being flown... Um, regularly, not as much as we would have liked, but it's uh, getting quite a bit of use. Um, one of our members recently borrowed it and put his golf clubs in it and went to Victoria to play golf. So um, <laughs> it looked, apparently looked quite strange having a set of golf clubs strapped into the passenger seat. Yeah. Um, 
And uh, now we're sort of looking at it at the end of this year, what we might be doing is looking at um, either selling it to a syndicate within our club or moving it on and then using the funds to uh, possibly build another aircraft. So, Chris, you mentioned that there was not as much training as you were you were hoping, but what what type of training are your members doing in the Sonics? Um, a lot of them is transition training as they've come from GA aircraft and they need to get a recreational aviation certificate, which is different from your private pilot's license. So another set of rules that operate separately. We had uh, a number of under-18s start out with us uh, working on the aircraft and we subsidised them. Um, we ended up with two that finished who we paid for uh, their basic ab initio training and one of them has now joined the Air Force and uh, is, is off getting flying training with the Air Force and we think that the, the project certainly helped him because um, everyone who worked on it got free flying a free rental of the aircraft, depending on a proportion of the hours they spent working on it. So um, a few people had um, quite a bit of time up their sleeve. Uh, our club president, I think, ended up with something like 70 hours credit. Um, and our young people had quite a bit of, enough credit for them to get themselves to solo standard. Uh, again, that was an interesting side trying to uh, entice young people into sport aviation and building. Um, there was a lot of interest early on um, and then I think uh, life and other interests in, intervened and we, as I said, it tailed off to just two at the end of the project. But we'll try it and we've, we've learned our lessons in how to do that and if anyone's got questions about a, a club group build like this, um, I'm happy to chat to them. On our website, there's, I don't know if you've dug down that far, uh, there's a, um, a project plan outline showing where where we thought we would be going and uh, where we actually went. And that could be useful for people as well if they want to uh, build an aircraft with their club. So Chris, yeah, you were talking about equating build hours <laughs> to flight hours, as I understand it. Yep. What, what kind of ratio did you establish? Um, we decided that uh, we'd give people about uh, 10% of the time they spent working on the, on the project um, and uh, as free flying. Uh, it was free in inverted commas in that they had to pay for the fuel but the aircraft hire was free. Uh, we also gave a lot of the the juniors um, an extra amount of time, depending on uh, their contribution to the project in terms of getting them out there to go and build their hours up. Yeah, uh, Chris, I'll put a link to the, the project website in the show notes if anybody wants to take a look. But I guess what I was thinking was the last bit of the project is always the hardest, and that's where people tend to, to start to burn out. So the fact that you had effort that was starting to trail off 
in that last bit. That's not surprising to me at all. No. It's really kind of a testament that you were able to power through that that slowdown and just get it done and get it flying. That's the real important part. Yeah, and the, the other problem for a lot of clubs is that there's lots of horror stories out there about projects being started and abandoned for you know, they can't face the idea that it might take them uh, several years to do this project. Whereas uh, we went from uh, opening the boxes to flying the aircraft in two and a half years. And that's a pretty good time horizon for, for a club. And uh, the Xenos would take a bit more work, I think. But now that you can buy the Spa factory built, that was quite a big job. Lot bigger job than building a Sonic Spa, and um, very time-consuming from our perspective. That and the CNC parts uh, make the the kit, you know, pretty good. It's uh, when we did look at the kits, we we were got it down to a Sonics or a, an RV12, uh, but the price did the RV12 out in the end. But re- in reality. Uh, with the CNC parts, uh, it's it's pretty close to Clico together and and rivet compared to say how how much further along the RV kits are in some respects. But the, the most recent kits are extremely good from Sonex. And yours was a match hold kit as well. Ours was match hold, but we uh, bought the Spa. Uh, we built the spa, and I think there was about 400 hours in faffing around with that because it's seven layers and a million holes. <laughs> yeah, the spa is a pretty heavy duty, yeah. So it took us a fair while, but we were pretty impressed with the spas. I think. Um, yeah, you're not going to break one, are you? Oh, I don't think so. No. So, Chris, did you find that you needed one member who was sort of the the chief driver on progress on the on it, or did it kind of go into committee and and that worked? Oh no, we we had a group, but we did have our, our club president Chris Moore took the lead in the project and uh, spent a lot of time on it. But there were a few others of us who were regularly there to keep an eye on people and and help. The main thing is that you need a driver. You need somebody who's taking uh, ownership of the whole project and be prepared to see it right through. You can have a committee, but you've still got to have that central person to drive it along. So if you had to boil this down to um, a handful of takeaways or lessons learned from from the group project, what do you think those would be? Uh, I think that building an aircraft for your group uh, as a syndicate or a four-year club is probably one of the most rewarding experiences that you will ever have. Uh, it's a bit less scary than doing it on your own. It doesn't cost as much as doing it on your own. And you end up with something that you can be incredibly proud of and, and have a lot of fun with over a long period of time. Is there an issue, I don't know, really, haven't really explored it, but an issue with registering your your Xenos in Australia and have it used for rental, for-profit, um, you know, commercial operations. Here in the United, United States, an experimental, we can't do that. We have to, it has to belong to a club or a group of people, I guess, is the only way to do this. Uh, pretty much the same here in that um, you can't 
use uh, uh, anything but a fully certified factory aircraft for training in a commercial sense. We're very limited in where we can fly, for example, unless you've got a certified aero engine and a pilot license, you can't fly into controlled airspace in Australia. So we have to stay outside of controlled airspace if you're in a recreational aviation registered So the difference is that you'll see DH and some letters on the aircraft. As long as that's got a, a uh, certified aviation engine in it and the pilot has a private pilot's license, which he has to have to fly a VH registered aircraft, then you can go to a lot of places, but you need a transponder and all of the usual things. Uh, for recreational aviation registered aircraft, it's generally not allowed in controlled airspace, but if you have a certified engine, and you also hold a private pilot's license with a controlled airspace endorsement, you can take it there. How about doing a training, primary training, uh, for uh, a student who didn't b help build the aircraft? Depending on how it works, uh, generally training, commercial training isn't allowed in a amateur-built aircraft. Even within the club? If you're not being paid for it, there's a, an exemption through there, but it's it's kind of murky. Yeah, ours is kind of the same way. Mm. Yeah, I think we could do it within a club as long as we weren't, uh, as long as the CFI was just a, a club member as well. Yeah, yeah. and not, not earning any income from it. Yeah. yeah, that's pretty much how it works. Okay. I'm just kind of curious, because if we explored... Uh, a proposal to my soaring club to say, hey, you guys all interested in building an aircraft like my, my Wayx, um, we could build a motor glider that you all can get checked out in and get your motor glider rating, and you all have fun building this thing. Yeah, that's a, it's a great social exercise. Um, I meant to ask you, do you have comments about your V-tail from people? Oh, absolutely, all the time. Yeah. Those dangerous V-tails? Yeah, absolutely. Do I does it wig wiggle waggle the entire time I'm flying? And I my response is my uh, my piling skills. Uh, I can't determine whether it's it's uh, wagging in the air or not. <laughs> well, my response is to stick people in the right hand seat and go flying with it, and then they go, oh, <laughs> just like a normal aeroplane. I've flown both the uh, the conventional tail and the standard, and I've done all the aerobatic maneuvers in both, and they are almost identical. No, there's not much difference. The, the Xenos is a much bigger aeroplane, a much bigger tailplane and everything. But uh, no, you, if you didn't know, you couldn't turn around and look at it, you wouldn't know that there was a V or a Y tail there. And I've, I've noticed also with my uh, YXs, I have just as much uh, crosswind uh, control as my buddies in the uh, the standard tail. Okay, yep. It can be exciting with the right rear crosswind on takeoff. Oh, oh, definitely, it's, it's exciting, but it's exciting in both air, air, aircraft. <laughs> All right, Chris. Well, it, what else do you want to talk about as far as um, gliding in Australia? Um, the use of your Xenos in those activities, or just uh, just in general, what else do you want to go into? We're a much smaller group here in Australia with Sonex, and we're working quite hard to keep the group growing. But we do have a surprisingly large number of Sonex aircraft being built around the country. If you do a search on the 
Sonic website, you can see that there's quite a few uh, being built now. Chris, what do you think um, the, your list of improvements for the next uh, Xenos model would be? Uh, more fuel. But I think the latest B model has more fuel, doesn't it? It has the, the, the same 20-gallon tank that the B model Sonics has. I don't see too many other things, really. I think it's very close to being an ideal, low-cost, simple simple to maintain aeroplane that uh, allows you to go and explore soaring if, you, if you're inclined to do that or just economical cruising. It, uh, it really is a, a terrific thing to fly around in. All right. <laughs> well, thanks again, Chris. Um, appreciate your comments. Uh, it's good to hear about other opportunities you know that you guys have have found both for the xenos and how to really make that airplane fit in well and uh, and your group project so i'd love to be able to export the success you had with your group sonics build that's a fantastic program we got to see if maybe we can encourage some other folks to do that all around absolutely happy to happy to be a bad influence on people at any time there you go all right thanks again chris have a good afternoon Okay, see ya. All right, bye-bye. So last up, we have Peter Anson. Peter is a retired engineer. He was involved in structural testing of aircraft parts. He's had quite a varied career in addition to his engineering work. Uh, Before that, I was effectively, uh, well, I was an engineer, but basically just a lab assistant, really. Uh, Also testing aircraft bits. We won't say that part. You were the CEO of a prominent structural aircraft engineering firm in Australia. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I think that's stretching a point a long way. <laughs> <laughs> so, Peter, uh, you are in uh, Victoria, correct? That's right. It's uh, supposedly the cold bit of Australia, but it's not really cold. Uh, not yeah, really cold. Cold is relative, it? isn't it? That's right. Yeah, it's, I, I find it. It's just a nice place to fly in winter. It has uh, mostly good weather for for flying. The uh, people up north call us uh, Mexicans because we're down south of the border. Yeah. (laughs) um, And it's the smallest and most populous state. But uh, Well, it's not the smallest. It's uh, Tasmania's smaller, but it's the most densely populated state. But it's still pretty scattered out uh, compared with some bits of the U.S. Well, this is early March up here in Colorado, and we we were in the about 60s for temperature, and that's Fahrenheit. What kind of temperatures are you experiencing uh, right now in Australia? It's supposed to get up to um, about 30, the low 30s, 33 or something like that uh, Celsius uh, today. So what's that, about 80s? About 85, 90, something like that. Yeah. Okay, nice. Yeah, something like It's not a good time for flying, really, uh, the weather's just beautiful at the moment, but uh, you really need to do your flying in the morning. It uh, gets pretty bumpy by late in the morning, unless you go pretty high. And I, if I'm tra- flying anywhere, I try to go pretty high. Well, in a Sonics, that's kind of a relative term. What would you consider high in your Sonics? Oh, well, <laughs> above 5,000 feet anyway. Um, Ooh, I, big time. <laughs> With my license, I'm not allowed to go above uh, 10,000 feet. If you're cruising, it's probably the same in the U.S. Uh, if you're heading west, you're at four and a half, six and a half, eight and a half thousand feet. And if you're heading east, you're at uh, five and a half, seven and a half, nine and a half. 
most times seven and a half thousand feet or eight and a half thousand feet uh, gets you above the bumps. I have had to do a trip at nine and a half thousand one time, but that's pretty unusual. I don't do that very often, but you get a good view up there. Yeah. And when it's bumpy, uh, that smooth ride is worth a whole lot. Well, I think it is anyway. Uh, I uh, I had to do one trip in the middle of the day from Mount Gambier one time, and I couldn't go above seven and a half thousand feet because the uh, there was a, a layer of cloud up there, and I just I just wasn't going to be able to get above that. The whole trip was really rough, and it was pretty unpleasant, to tell the truth. I usually enjoy touring, with, even with the Sonics, but uh, that was a pretty hard trip. I came home from Sun and Fun uh, fly-in, which is in April. Uh, this was last year, and I had a dilemma. I could stay low where the tailwind wasn't as bad, or the headwind, I'm sorry, wasn't as bad, or I could go up and get out of the bumps but fight a, a worse headwind. So that's what we chose to do. It was it was pretty bumpy and just very unpleasant. So we went higher to get up into smooth air, and that was about seven 7,000 feet or so. And then uh, I was just astonished to see my ground speed drop to about 70 miles an hour, and we had a good 70-mile-an-hour headwind. Oh, yeah, don't like that at all. I think I probably would have been putting up with the bumps in that case. But... It was a long trip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Peter, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your aviation background? Just bring us up to the point where you started thinking about building the Sonics, and then we'll get into your, your project itself. Okay. Uh, well, I was um, never particularly interested in flying aircraft. My uh, father was a pilot, and as far as I knew, uh, you had to be in the Air Force or very rich to fly an aeroplane, and I didn't really think about it until about uh, 20 years ago, and I started working back at what was then called Defence Science Technology Organisation, it's changed its name a few times, and uh, on aircraft fatigue tests. I'm not sure why, but I guess it was probably having kids largely off my hands and having a little bit of expendable cash that uh, I started thinking about um, flying. And I still didn't do anything about it until I went to the Avalon Air Show in about 2001, and there were some a lot of ultralights there. I can remember seeing a little uh, Jabiru two-seater taxiing in. I nearly fell over when two people got out of the thing. I couldn't believe you could get two people in such a small aeroplane. And I went and had a look, and I thought, gee, I could probably afford one of these things. And so I went and uh, took lessons. Uh, I didn't really think of going for general a general aviation license at the time, and I uh, started dealing with Recreational Aviation Australia. It used to be called the Australian Ultralight Federation. With the, the license that you get through them lets you fly day VFR only. There's no aerobatics and you can't fly into controlled airspace. So it does have its limits, but surprisingly, they don't affect you too much unless you want to go to northern Queensland where there's quite a few of the, um, the main airfields are all controlled airspace. And so it's only really ever bothered me once or twice. Now that's sort of got me into looking at uh, an aircraft to build. I was always interested in building something. Uh, my licence at the time had only allowed an aircraft up to uh, 1,200 pounds. 
uh, all up weight. And the Sonex was one of the aircraft that fitted that. And that's why I started looking at the Sonex. The only other aircraft I really looked at was a Jabiru kit. I liked some of the things like um, uh, the Pulsar, just because I liked the look of it. I also looked at um, the uh, Zenith 601, but I didn't really like the look of that all that much. I just thought it was a bit of an ugly critter. The real attraction of the Sonics was that I could just buy a set of plans and start building. So it was a fairly economical way into the thing. That's interesting because I think a lot of people go through the same mental process. Uh, I also really like the looks of the Pulsar. And when you really kind of put pencil to it, it's not a particularly inexpensive plane to build, especially the later models. The Zenith has the advantage you can build it from plans, but it's the same type of thing. It's, it's a different airplane. So... It's interesting how a lot of people do the same thing and kind of follow the same path to ultimately end up at a Sonics. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm not particularly big. Uh, I, I fit into a very light aircraft quite easily, so uh, a Sonics suited me fine. Uh, I like the performance of it, and uh, it probably wouldn't appeal the same to a lot of Americans, but... I like the idea that I could put a Jabiru engine in it because, you know, it's a local engine, locally built engine. And, um, and in fact, I was originally intending to build it with a, a Jabiru 2200 uh, because I thought that would be a, a, an economical way to go. I, I built it with the 3300 almost by accident. I actually bought the engine on eBay. I, I had seen it come up on eBay for about 14000 Australian dollars, and uh, they didn't sell it at the time, and the next time it came up, it had a starting price of, I think it was ten or $11,000. I, I had an engine mount for a 2200 and everything at the time, and uh, I just couldn't let that go past. It turned out to be a, a really good thing to do. I was really happy that I bought the bigger engine. Yeah, call it a happy accident, but the the smaller engines just don't give you that take your breath away performance that the six cylinder does. I love flying the the Bajabru. Mm. Yeah, uh, you still you still have a, a light aircraft, I and mean, mine weighs pretty much the same as most of the uh, VW powered aircraft, but it's got that extra extra forty horsepower. It really makes a difference. Mine's not a particularly clean one. I, there are um, there are others that go faster but uh, just for for climb out and just being able to get off the ground in a short time it, it's just great i love flying it mm-hmm. it's good fun to fly it's uh, I, I tend to try and you know relate it to cars i suppose and uh, they, they sort of look like buying a toyota sedan whereas the sonics is like getting a you know a lotus super seven or something it's um it's a little bit rough and it's but it's light and fast and good fun to fly. Yeah. So, Peter, um, you completed your plane. You built it from plans, and I think you said you finished it in 2012. Was that right? That's right, yes. So so how long was your build process? And, and what I'm really curious about is um, some of the unique challenges. Building in Australia, being so far away from the factory, had to have its own challenges. And that's really what I want to kind of hear about. Well, um, it took me six years to build it from plans, and uh, which – almost shocked me until I realised how much work there was. Uh, I'd hoped it would only take me a couple of years. The Probably the main 
problem is um, if you were buying a kit, you get all the, the bits, but when you're doing it from plans, you're, you're buying bits and pieces, and, and some of them are available locally, but some you do need to buy from the U.S., and there are other things which are just more economical to buy from the U.S. For example, um, the uh, all the sheet uh, metal that I used for the skins and everything, I could buy that locally, no problem. It wasn't particularly dear or expensive. Uh, but the extrusions locally were incredibly expensive. And mine actually has uh, 2024T3 uh, longerons because um, it was actually cheaper to buy them as a 2024 than in 6061. The other thing that comes to mind was all the um, piano hinge for control surfaces and seats and everything. I remember buying a couple of sticks of that from um, a local supplier and they cost me something like $55 each and exactly the same things that you can buy from a, for about $9 from aircraft spruce. The freight costs from spruce are pretty high. It just about doubles the price of most of the things you, you buy, but it was still cheaper to buy them that way than to buy them locally. Some of my friends who were doing scratch building, they actually managed to get the piano hinge from a, a scrapyard. The scrapyard obviously bought a pile of these from um, as uh, not scrap metal. They were the genuine hinges. Uh, it's a surplus type of thing, yeah. Yeah. And, well, Peter, by the yeah. end of the project then, how would you compare the cost scratch built versus kit uh, guide? Well, I'm not exactly sure how it happened, but I kept a pretty good track of all the money I spent, and I actually built mine for probably just a little over 30000 Australian dollars. So it was a pretty cheap build. But that was one of the advantages of scratch building is you take so long to do stuff that you can, you can sort of hunt around for bargains here and there. So I bought my engine for, I think, 11300 although it cost me about another 500 in freight. So about less than 12,000 Australian dollars for my engine. I think I bought a radio, uh, just a, a microwear radio for about, I think about 600 odd dollars. I forget that now. Um, I bought that from a guy in the US. Yeah, most of the, I didn't get too much stuff cheap that way. I bought some of the other parts from other builders in Australia who, uh, there was a uh, Chris Patterson in Queensland was going to fit a, a Rotax 914 so, and wing tanks, and so I bought a fuel tank, an engine mount, and spats. Oh, sorry, wheel pants from him. I bought some landing gear legs from a friend in South Australia, and I bought the wing spars from another friend. The other thing I I did need to buy a bunch of bulky things like all the engine cowlings and and canopy and stuff like that. And I went in a group with, um, oh, let's see, uh, oh, a couple of other builders anyway, um, and uh, we bought a, a huge box of stuff and uh, we split up the freight three ways. And the others were buying engines and all, all sorts of bits and pieces. I th think I bought about... Oh, Two two and a half thousand dollars worth of bits, and I managed to get the freight down to about seven hundred dollars for that. 
the, the freight is the real killer, especially for things like uh, canopies. Well, the, the freight thing, I think um, it would be really good if you had the connections or the foresight to just, if you're ordering something from the U.S., uh, order a, an extra or, or two and stash them away. Somebody will need them at some point. Well, we actually did that uh, with the canopies. When we put in the large order, we bought uh, four canopies between the three of us. One of the guys uh, has since sold his Sonics. And the other one was is so far from finishing that he's not too worried about it. So I, I bought them out <laughs> for uh, another canopy. So we did do that in that case. And I think if you buy a, a Sonics kit uh, from anywhere but the US, I think you have to buy it with uh, two canopies anyway. Yeah, so I, that's how I get my extra canopy, by uh, buying an extra one. And right. every now and then people are trying to do that, but it takes a bit of organization to get the order together. As right. it turned out, that particular one, we were all pretty close together. Peter, as you think back to the things you scratch built and then the things that you bought, were there any things that you would have done differently, such as you scratch built a piece and you think, man, I should have just bought it from the factory or, or vice versa? Oh, yes. Um, all of the uh, control surfaces. Um, I did buy the flaps and aileron uh, sections uh, from the factory when in that big order for all the um, for the elevator and rudder I folded them myself and that was just really hard to get right and at the time I had the I had access to uh, a radius bender which uh, you know bent the correct radius for those control surfaces and even then, I think I must have folded about uh, half a dozen little test strips just getting the shape right, and they're still not as good as the factory ones. They're, they're good enough, but they just weren't quite as good. And uh, so when I built the ailerons and the flaps, I just thought that was such an easy process because I just had this section. All I had to do was uh, uh, stick the ribs in, chop the excess off, and rivet it together. It was just so easy. That, that was probably the main thing. Uh, everything else is pretty much the same. I, I cheated a bit on uh, some of the parts. Um, instead of cutting them out myself, I did a drawing and, and uh, had them uh, CNC routed. So I did that with uh, well, some of the skins. And when I didn't do that, I often made mistakes. So uh, I spent about eight hours one day cutting out the aft fuselage sides. And when I went to uh, attach them to the longerons, I found that um, the longerons were too long. And when I started measuring things up, I found that the longerons were exactly right. And what I had done is spent eight hours cutting up the wrong length. And, because, and it was all because the drawing dimensions are taken from that fold. Anyway, it, it it was a an really annoying thing, and I was a lot quicker at it when I made the second set of skins, but it cost me a lot of money. Right. And, <laughs> and I always thought, I'll use that material for something later, and you know what? I never have. <laughs> I've still got it. Yeah. I, I did some th things slightly differently, but not a lot. Um, there was one spot in the fuselage floor where you – the drawing called up a, a flat gusset with a spacer underneath it, and I just put a put a joggle in the thing so that I didn't have to put the spacer underneath. But you know that's pretty pretty minor things. There were some bits that I 
you know, if I'd designed it myself, I would have made them different, but I haven't designed an aeroplane, so I can't really argue too much about it. Right. Uh, some of the uh, the splice plates that join the Longerons, I think, are a bit too light, and I would have liked to see them made so that they spread the loads out a bit better, but I've never heard of one breaking, so they uh, they must be okay. Some of the parts I think they've sort of gone a bit too cheap on, things like the axles and, um, yeah, probably I, I would have liked to have done them a little bit differently, but the fact is that they mostly work pretty well. John's been known for his um, his really strict adherence on making something simple and easy to fabricate and no more complicated than it needs to be. Not everybody agrees with that approach, but um, I think that understanding where John is coming from, that's his background and that's what he tends to design. Yeah, and the fact is that the thing does work quite well, even with bits that you don't necessarily like. But uh, that's how I ended up uh, getting around to making some part, you know, some bits a bit, uh, differently myself. And yeah, well, let's talk about those. Let's talk about your modifications and then the parts that you're ultimately making and marketing. Well, I think his most famous part is probably his gas cap, wouldn't you say, Peter? Yeah, well, uh, I have run into tr trouble with that just recently. I had uh, I sold a couple recently to guys in the U.S. and, and uh, one up here they didn't Collins, fit. Colorado. It was one up here to uh, to Brad in, in Fort Collins, Colorado, didn't quite fit right. And, That's and right. Can, yes, I can explain um, why I messed that up for you. I think the um, the top of the fuel neck might have been cut shorter. I'm not sure if that's the case. I can tell you for sure it was because I built it. Oh right. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, the last time I last email I had from Brad, uh, I had made a, a different um, body for for his uh, fuel tank, and he said it worked okay now. So I'm hoping that's okay. Yeah, and, last I uh, talked to him, it did, and I went for a flight in, and I can say I didn't I didn't smell a whiff of fuel, so it was pretty nice. Yeah. I'm still trying to um, get some information out of the other builder. It's uh, Jim. I just have to think of Jim's last name. But um, he has the same problem, and I think the slightly bigger body will work on his. And uh, the cap, as I make them, works fine with the standard fuel neck. Um, why did you have to cut it shorter, by the way? Well, first of all, Peter, what, uh, let's talk about your cap and the way you originally designed it. Because what we originally were stuck with were the fuel fuel tanks is we had to use a Robert Shaw thermos plug style stopper in there. They were not threaded uh, caps that they have on some of the newer tanks now. And so you just basically had a straight wall neck. But as we fit these fuel tanks into the sonics, as, as there's always a little bit of differences, but to get, get them to fit underneath the cowlings, uh, they even said that at times you have to end up trimming some of that filler neck. And that's what happened okay. in my particular case is to trim the filler neck to get it to seat down in there well enough so that you could get the Robert Shaw plug in there, which has a pretty high uh, lever action mechanism that sticks up there. And so mm -hmm. if you get a little bit too aggressive with that, you could certainly end up a little bit less of uh, an ideal uh, amount of, of straight sidewall in the filler neck. I didn't have that problem with my fuel tank. I was mainly keen to change the fuel cap on mine because uh, to get it to seal, I had to uh, have the thing so tight that I had to put a lot of force, and I was actually worried about breaking the, the front of the fuel 
tank. I have no idea whether that's possible, but uh, I had to put a lot of force on it, and the, it was just leaking. I think the other thing works really well is a um, little um, uh, valve for the uh, for the fuel vent. I messed around with that a fair bit early on, and uh, uh, when I first realised that I had a problem, and uh, I originally just used a little steel ball bearing in the uh, AN fitting, and uh, it would obviously work if the thing got flipped on its head, but um, it didn't work for uh, just sort of light negative G or even going downhill with a, a bit of fuel in the tank. I eventually managed to get some little uh, Teflon spheres. I, I suppose if you had the thing, did a very long negative G manoeuvre, I'm not sure how you'd do that in a Sonex, you'd probably have other problems. But um, but for normal flight where you just hit negative G for a short time, they seem to work really well. I've never seen fuel come out of mine since then. So, Peter, what are the other uh, modifications you made that led to other products? Because you have your flap stops, your tail wheel, and a handful of other things. The flap stops uh, started out very soon after I first started flying my Sonics, and uh, I just felt, well, I don't have the um, the riveted-on uh, bits of angle over the flaps, which do act as a stop, and I'm not sure how you'd get set them right anyway, and and uh, I felt that the aircraft didn't feel wonderfully stable in uh, roll and uh, at different speeds. And I had a guess that um, there was a deflection in the flap drive tube that runs from one side of the aircraft to the other. And I've done some calculations which indicate that uh, can be a problem. One of the first things I did was try fitting, uh, machining up some flap stops. And I felt that the aircraft was much better with those in. I've sold a fair few of those. and I haven't had a lot of feedback. I've had some people say you should fit these and other people, well, I've just, I, I just don't know. But I, I've been tempted to uh, pull the screws out on mine and just see what it feels like again. But uh, I've never got around to doing it. But um, the advantage of them, though, is that you can adjust it fairly easily for a different load. You just can't. I mean, I normally fly mine just one person, but uh, when I do have a, a heavy passenger, I know I've got to put a bit of extra force in with the stick to uh, keep the aircraft level. Something that you could adjust from the uh, cabin would be better, but um, uh, those would give you the option of adjusting slightly for a slightly heavier pa uh, uh, passenger. Other things, let's see, uh, the air vent, so air inlets, um, when I first built mine, I just built it pretty much uh, as per the plans and it gets pretty hot here at times and uh, I found that I was just not getting anywhere near enough air into the cabin. And uh, so I had a bit of a guess that um, if I put a proper duct in there that it would work better and, and it turned out that that did work quite well. And since then, I've been making different shaped ducts which work better again but if you're stuck with the original shape cutouts um, the original ducts that I make do work well and you get good ventilation air and that's what I'm still running myself. I originally drew the things up uh, using SolidWorks and I was going to try and get a commercial company to uh, print them for me just using a 3D printer and 
they wanted so much money for it that it was just about cheaper to buy my, my own printer, and that's what I ended up doing. And uh, I've got into that in a, a bit bigger way. Uh, I've made a few other parts uh, for my aircraft that using the 3D printer, uh, just little handles. Um, just recently I made a thing to hold the um, Stratomaster Ultra Horizon panel at a, a different angle. They're good fun to do, but uh, you've got to be pretty keen to do the drawings and, uh, and 3D printing still a bit of a nerd thing. I'm not much of a computer nerd, so I struggle a bit with some bits. But uh, it is a nice way of making low-strength, small parts. Um, Peter, the, uh, going back to your cutouts on the side of the fuselage, did you do those originally to the plan specs as far as location? Yes, yes, I did. Yeah, I did too. Uh, I, I agree with you that without having anything else extra in there, I, I got very little ventilation through there, and I basically almost sealed them off, ended up uh, cutting some uh, like three and eighth inch uh, of those plastic bits that go through the windshield that stick out into the air as scoops. But you're saying that with the uh, the modified ducts that you did in the standard location, you got significantly increased airflow? Oh, yeah, yeah. It, it made a big difference. Um, so that might be something it, people really want to pay attention to. If they've already cut those things in there, it's not like you relocate them. But perhaps by adding your uh, your uh, your NACA-type inlet ducts to it, that might significantly increase their, their airflow and make them happy. Uh, yeah, so they really do work quite well. Um, it's one of those things I, I, I don't have any numbers for it. I, it's just a subjective um, assessment. But uh, I, I would like to do the uh, the true uh, NACA-type shape, but uh, to do it I'd have to make it quite a lot, a lot bigger than uh, the existing ducts. And most times it's, they're good enough. There's, you get the odd days where um, – there's probably you could probably do with a little bit more air in there, but um, you know you can always go a little bit higher as well, and it cools down a little bit further up. Let's see the other bits. Uh, the tail wheel, I just didn't like the rattly noise from the back. I've actually had a couple of different sized tail wheels because originally I just bought a little. Um, locally made plastic wheel it was um let's see uh eight inch tire so eight inch outside diameter but it was a little bit heavier poked out a little bit further out the back to clear everything and uh, the tires didn't last all that long and i i sort of became aware that uh that people that had jabru 2200 engines um a little bit restricted with uh with weight because they were Easy, it was easy to run them uh, tail heavy. So I thought, I wonder if I can make something a little bit lighter, and um, that's what I did. I couldn't buy a suitable wheel for the little six-inch tyres, so I ended up making them myself. The first one I made was uh, was all nylon, and it was only two millimetres thick, so everything was pretty thin. I used that for quite a long while, but uh, I eventually found that uh, I could make a one with aluminium part nylon and uh, that was better it was an and no heavier so they went through quite a few uh, stages yeah so now i make them out of either metal or nylon the nylon one's a little bit uh, quicker to turn up so i sell those slightly cheaper but it's you know hardly anything really the aluminium ones are only slightly heavier probably more robust 
Uh, I have a little pneumatic tail wheel which where you can get a flat, but I've only ever had a flat once on it, and it was not uh, a puncture. It was through not pumping the darn thing up properly and uh, then carrying a heavy passenger. <laughs> we tended to uh, have the tyre coming apart inside. And you can easily tell when you've got a flat. It's, you can feel the extra drag. I think uh, Phil Bird in New South Wales has had a flat in his, and he suspects he had the same thing go wrong. How about your wheel jack? Oh, right. Forgot about that. <laughs> um, originally, I wanted some way of just jacking the thing up if I ever had a, a flat while I was traveling anywhere because I'm just about always by myself and there's most of the airfields you land out are pretty well deserted or there's certainly no, <laughs> nowhere, nobody you can get to give you a hand. And uh, so I wanted something that would jack it up uh, just so I could do a, t a wheel change or a tire change. And I have had to use the thing twice so far. The only problem I encountered was that um, if I've had a tyre go flat and it's gone really flat, it'll roll off the rim and the, and uh, it's quite hard to get the jack in underneath the axle. Uh, but uh, it would be nice to have something that went lifted even higher. But um, but it does work. It works. Uh, it's, you can lift the aircraft pretty easily. And... Uh, the hardest thing with that was trying to make something that uh, you could use on an aircraft that uh, uh, had the uh, standard Sonics axles because uh, there's just no lift point. I, I Even uh, jacking the, the aircraft in my hangar, I used to have to get underneath the wing and push up underneath it and then stick a, a, a block in underneath the, uh, the hard point. And, uh, I was just waiting until I punched a hole in the wing somehow doing that. <clears throat> I, I actually had some good help from uh, Don Bowen in uh, California because uh, he wanted to buy a jack, but at that time I didn't have any way of, uh, of um, lifting the, um, the stocks on X-Axle. So I sent him a jack and I sent him my <laughs> sort of Mark I uh, version of a a clamp on hard point, and he found that that didn't work, so I sent him another one, and we eventually came up with a solution. My problem there was that I didn't have anything that I could try the thing on myself. There's no Sonics just around me that are handy, and, um, well, the nearest ones uh, all have uh, Tracy O'Brien axles, which are just like mine. So Don managed to help me out quite a lot there. He thought it was pretty good that he was uh, contributing to the cause. <laughs> uh, yeah, Peter, I, I'm just thinking about your product, something you mentioned to me. You didn't set out to develop a line of aftermarket Sonics products. As you identified something that you wanted for your own airplane, you did it. You came up with a product that worked for you, and then you offered it up if anybody else wanted it. And that's kind of how your catalog of parts grew from your own your own use, basically. Uh, that's Basically it, yeah. Um, there's no real reason for making a whole lot, lot of special Sonics bits uh, because um, for, for most people, everything works okay. But I, there were some of those bits that I just found that I, I wasn't really entirely happy with, and so I made something to do change it, and I made it available. And um, I... I haven't really tried to ever push them. I mean, I'm retired and I'm intending to stay pretty retired. 
Uh, so it's it's not a, exactly a big business or anything. I, I sell a couple of things a month, and uh, if I could live on $100 a, a week, I'd be uh, probably quite happy, but I think my pension will have to do for that. <laughs> well, I'm certainly thankful for guys like you that, that are able to do this kind of stuff and willing to share it at the same time, because you're right. Every once in a while, we, we think we, we know we want something. We don't exactly know exactly what it is until someone like you comes up with the idea and fabricates it. Yeah. Oh, well, um, it's a it's a sort of a – it's not really a hard thing to do. It's just you've uh, you've got to have a need for it, and unless you've got a need for it, um, there's nothing to do, really. Well, Peter, the other thing which um, I think that you've done a fair amount of is just getting out and flying some pretty long cross-countries in your Sonic. So tell us about some of the trips you've taken. One of the things that you often hear people say about Sonics is that it's uh, not really a good cross-country machine. And it keeps your hands full flying cross-country. I, I have uh, great difficulty keeping at an accurate altitude and accurate course, but the accurate course is pretty easy these days with the GPS. Uh, the accurate altitude is the uh, probably the hardest bit. Uh, the last longest trip I did over to South Australia to the Flinders Ranges with my uh, uh, son-in-law, I found out that he could fly the uh, the course far more accurately than I could, which was really annoying. Well, it wasn't really annoying. It was just good to be able to do other stuff at the time. And uh, he enjoyed the trip and I enjoyed the trip, so it was good fun. The aircraft is fast enough to go places. If you're, um, if there's uh, just one person on board, you've got plenty of room for for luggage. Uh, I've carried fuel, extra fuel with me as well, and I, I've enjoyed the trips. It's been good fun. Uh, it was especially interesting and fun to do it with uh, my son-in-law because uh, you know you like to share the share the fun around a bit. It's always nice to have a passenger with you. I think, anyway, especially one who's not too big and doesn't squash you out of the airplane. Um, if you're going to fly anywhere in Australia, well, it's like the US, if you can fly anywhere, you're going to be travelling a fair distance. Um, the main difficulty in Australia is you have to plan your fuel very carefully. I suppose the other problem in Australia, it would be like flying in the more remote bits in the US. The other thing about Australia is it's pretty flat. So there's a, a pretty rugged uh, but not very high mountain range all along the east coast. But once you get inside of that, all, all the land is fairly flat. It's not mostly not forested. So if there are forests, you know, it's pretty scrubby little trees. You've got no real excuse for not flying over areas where if you do have an engine out, you should be able to get the aeroplane down well, at least stay alive anyway. You do have to carry an emergency locator uh, beacon. I think you do too, don't you? Yes, yes, we do. We have the ELTs, but um, more and more people are, are buying those personal locator beacons that you would use for adventure sports or backpacking or something like that. Yeah, well, that's all I carry is just a little personal locator beacon. That sort of takes the danger out of it. Well, Peter, the, the last thing I wanted to talk about, give us a sense of the, the Sonics builder community in Australia. You talked about going and visiting some of the other builders and, and that people are spread out, but how do you view the community of fellow Sonics builders? Just put that in perspective for us. I believe there are around about um, 100 builders or flyers in Australia. 
I have come across a few people that have bought the plans but have never actually done anything, so the, the number might not be quite that high. On the other hand, I come across people or aircraft that I've never heard of before, so and they don't appear in the Sonics uh, on the Sonics Builders um, site. Yeah, we are pretty scattered, so if you do happen to uh, see another Sonics, it's usually a bit of an occasion. So much so that uh, my own Sonics was the first one I ever saw fly. I had um, gone to a fly-in. They were all there parked, and I talked to a few guys, and they all looked nice, but I didn't see any of them flying. So mine was the first one I ever saw fly. Every now and then I read with people want to have a test flight in an aircraft before they commit to building it, and I think there's probably very few people in Australia that have ever had a flight in a Sonics before they've committed to building the thing. There probably are a few, and I know I, I've given you know, people flights, but uh, whether they've gone on to build one after is uh, another matter. Certainly I haven't heard of any of them. In fact, uh, the last Sonics builder that I gave a flight to was actually from Pennsylvania. He was out here visiting his daughter, and he's building a 1X, and uh, um, he contacted me, and I said, well, would you like to go for a flight in the Sonics? And it was probably a good thing for him to do because uh, he normally flew a Mooney, and you know they fly a fair bit different to a Sonics from what I've heard. And so he got to have a bit of a go and, and uh, to find out you know, how sensitive that uh, elevator is. Why don't we just uh, wrap this up with uh, if you if you just think back on your building or your flying or any any of your own experiences and you could kind of summarize it into some takeaways or some advice to other people or whatever. If you're just going to share a few tips, what would that be? I think I would try to uh, build the Sonics pretty close to the plans. The plans are good, and um, one reason that quite a high percentage of Sonics get finished is because uh, the plans are good. You haven't got to make up too much stuff, so don't make it up. You can still do some stuff the way you like, which is what I have obviously done, but uh, make the thing to the plans. Try not to add too much stuff into it, and uh, you should end up with a pretty good aircraft and one that's a lot of fun to fly too. Okay, that's about it really. All right. Well, good deal. Uh, Peter, thanks for um, giving us a, a, a little bit of a, a, some insight into how you see your Sonics and how you're using it and some of the, the local flavor in your neck of Australia. Appreciate that. Yeah. It was good to speak to you, bud. Thanks a lot. Have a good afternoon, and we'll, we'll talk to you again soon. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. The views and opinions expressed on the Sonics Light podcast are those of the hosts and guests alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of any individual, company, or organization mentioned on this program. Nothing presented on this podcast should be construed to be the official position or recommendation of anyone not directly associated with Sonics Flight. Anything that sounds like advice should be carefully considered before being implemented. Remember, you are the pilot in command.